0: Good morning friends. I want to invite you to take your Bibles now and turn with me to Acts chapter 18 as we consider the passage that Janine has just read for us. You should find a Bible within arm's reach if you didn't bring one with you here today and we'd love for you to take that with you as our gift to you if you don't own a copy of the Bible. We hope you'll take us up on that and we'd love the chance to talk to you about what we're going to discuss together today and about other things you may read there for yourself. Um, I'm guessing none of you folks need me to tell you that yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. And I'm guessing that if you, like me, lived through those attacks, no matter what your age was at the time, you probably remember something about where you were, about what it felt like to see those images come at you through the TV screen, about how surreal it was to watch these things unfold, and about how moving it was to see how many people rose to the needs that day created. I've been gobbling up these retrospectives that you've been able to find pretty much anywhere you look lately. I mean, we watched some together yesterday as a family. Uh, I, I, one of the most interesting things I've come across so far, though, was a New York Magazine article about this, this aspect of the, the day itself that I had not really been aware of. I don't know how I missed this, but on 9-11, shortly after the attack and after the buildings had come down, There were a ton of civilians who used their boats, their own boats, to flock to the tip of Manhattan Island and evacuate all these people who were stuck there, covered in ash, breathing in all of these toxic fumes. There's this awesome article in New York Magazine that'll tell you the whole story. A call went out from the U.S. Coast Guard on, on site at the time. All available boats, anyone available to help with the evacuation of lower Manhattan, the report read, Report to Governor's Island. New York mariners answered. This is from the article. And within 15 to 20 minutes, the horizon began to fill with boats of all shapes and sizes and functions. The flotilla that day included upwards of 130 boats harbor launches, fishing vessels, sightseeing ships, dinner cruise boats, as well as 33 ferries and 50 tugboats, plus the numerous FDNY and NYPD and Coast Guard rescue boats. In fact, an NYPD marine officer named Keith Duval even commandeered a pleasure yacht from North Cove Marina, this is my favorite part of the article, quote from Duval: rich people always leave the keys in the boat, end quote. Sure enough, after finding the keys, Duval and his colleagues grabbed the boat and made 10 trips to Jersey and back over the course of the day. It's amazing. By, by, by the end of this day, the civilian operation had accomplished the greatest maritime evacuation in world history, even larger than the more famous evacuation of Dunkirk by the British in World War II. Somewhere between 300,000 and 500,000 people were evacuated from Manhattan Island and taken safely to the mainland during the course of that day. There's a lot to like about this story. It's a page-turner. I I highly recommend it to you. but, But perhaps what strikes me most about it, the reason I'm telling you this story this morning, is that these civilians didn't wait on somebody else to act when they saw there was a need. They took it on themselves. The need was simply too great to sit back and wait on the professionals to handle it all. These people were simply too endangered. And the the calculus was really straightforward and simple. These people are in great danger. I have a vessel that could save them. That makes me responsible to help. It's a scenario that reminds me a lot of what we've been watching unfold in Acts as we've covered this book chapter by chapter over the last few weeks. It reminds me a lot of the posture that Acts is continually calling each of us to. Because Acts has put in front of us a a world-scale challenge. A danger far greater than whatever those toxic fumes brought to those stuck on Manhattan Island. And Acts has continually put in front of us a vessel that will save anybody who wants to jump on it. It's big enough to hold the weight of anyone who will ever trust in Christ to free them from sin and death. And because the need is so great, because the vessel is so sturdy, so up to this challenge, we've seen acts unfold for us over and over again. The baseline responsibility of every Christian with access to Jesus, to take Jesus to everyone who lacks him. It's not a mission you can afford to leave to the professionals. It's just too, there's too much to do. And it's not a mission you have to leave to the professionals, because that vessel is yours as much as it's theirs. You have everything at your disposal that you need to, to, to take this message of salvation to those who still don't have it. One of the biggest gifts to us of studying Acts together over these last weeks and what we'll continue to see week by week as we carry our way through the end of the book is the strategy that Acts gives to us for our church and our life here together, right here, right now. As, as much as separates us from these old days and the life of the church, as different in some ways as much of this story is from what we can expect in our time and our place, one of the reasons the book has been given to us is so that we can see the basic strategies God has given to us for carrying on the mission that they first began. And, and, and here in chapter 18... For all the diversity of material you've already seen when Janine read it. For all the interesting twists and turns and historical details. And for all the there's sort of quick context shifting from one thing to another throughout these individual stories. For all of that, one central thread that comes through this chapter is, is the strategy that Paul took up for himself and handed on to others for making sure this mission keeps on going forward. And that's the strategy we want to try to lock in on this morning. In the little bit of time we have together to walk through Acts chapter 18, I want us to consider what do we need as a church and as individual Christians, part of this church, to build a church that's centered on the power of God's Word to save anyone from anywhere. We've been saying from Acts, uh, in our study through through Acts from the beginning, that it's almost like the central character in the story is the Word. We keep watching it progress and over and over Luke will show us the word kept spreading, the word kept spreading, the word kept spreading. It's like the structure of the book follows the spread of the word. If we want to double down as a church on God's word as the thing people need, God's word as the central power source for any good that happens through our life together, what kind of strategy would we pursue? If that's what we really believe about the word and about people's need for it, how will that affect the choices we make? about what we prioritize? That's the question I want to answer in the time we have left from pulling through some of the themes of of Acts 18. Now, let me just give you one more quick note about how we're going to proceed this morning. Uh, Because of the nature of this chapter, I think the best way for us to get the goodness that it holds for us is to come over the whole thing several different times. I want you to think about this sermon as kind of like a prep for a you know, a nice tall glass of fresh squeezed orange juice. You've just got the one orange, but you want to squeeze out of it every bit of good juicy goodness that you can. That means you're going to go hard on it at first. And the biggest squeeze is going to be the first one. It's where you're going to get most of your juice. That's true for us today too. The first point is going to have The most for us this morning, but then you know know there's still some juice left in there, right? So you you want to grab a hold of that whole orange and squeeze it again and see how much more you can get, and keep squeezing until it's all gone. I want to I want to come over Acts 18 like like an orange and squeeze it until every last drop falls into our cup. And here's the first squeeze. Here's the first squeeze of this orange. What are we going to need if we want a church where our strategy is built on our confidence in God's word to do the work? Well, the first thing we're going to need is your partnership. What will we need if we want to build our church on the gospel with the word at the center of it? We will need your partnership. I think the most noticeable and unique aspect of Paul's strategy that comes out of this chapter is his dependence on partners to carry on the work beyond what he can reach for himself. It's just so clear in this chapter that Paul's not out there building a brand around him. He doesn't think he's the one you need. Because he thinks Jesus is the one you need, and because Jesus can go from one person to another no matter who it is that's passing him on, Paul wants exponential growth in those who are offering Jesus to others. Because he wants to see this word spread a lot further than his few days will allow him to reach. Because he knows he won't be around forever. Paul spends his time cultivating other people who can carry on that work long after he's gone. The word is the thing. And that means not even Paul, not even the apostle is indispensable. The word is the thing. And that means absolutely anyone can get in on this and be useful, including you. Now, I, I, here's where I, I think the best place we can see that this is Paul's strategy is in what, what Luke tells us about this power couple, Aquila and Priscilla. We, we've seen Paul building out co workers before, investing time in other people. I mean, uh, Silas and Timothy, for example, they're in this chapter, just as they've been in. in previous chapters. But I want you to come with me into the arc of this story of Priscilla and Aquila. This is where you can see it more clearly than I've seen it so far in Acts. And I, I think you can see yourselves in this power couple and how Paul prepares them. Uh, look with me at the details before we step back out and try to drive them home. So, so at the very beginning of chapter 18, Paul has arrived from Athens where he was waiting on Silas and Timothy to join him. He left uh, Silas and Timothy behind back after they stopped in Thessalonica and Berea, presumably to carry on discipling those believers and get their churches set up. And, And for some reason now, instead of just sitting tight in Athens and waiting on them there, he decides to move on to Corinth, not too far away, another one of the region's major centers for commerce and trade. When he gets to Corinth, he finds a couple of Jewish Christians who've relocated from Rome after the emperor there decided to kick all the Jews out of town. And it's easy to imagine... Isn't it? How happy Paul would have been to find them there. I mean, he's never been to Corinth, presumably. We keep it, saying that the word is spreading and spreading and spreading, and now we can see it. Like, it's now in a place where Paul had never visited. Brought there by a couple of Christians who were in Rome where Paul had never visited. This thing is taking off. Imagine how encouraging that would have been for this man who'd been through so much and staggers his way into Corinth. He tells us in his letter to Corinth that he came in there with fear and much trembling. He's worn down. He's beaten up. And he comes in and what does he find but a couple of Jewish Christians he didn't even know about. And icing on the cake is they're tent makers just like him. No wonder then that Luke says he stayed with them and worked with them day by day. This is in in verses uh, 2 and 3. And on the weekends, verse 4 tells us, he spent his time in the synagogues reasoning with the Jews and the Greeks trying to persuade them. He was in verse 5, verse 5 tells us, occupied with the word, testifying that the Christ was Jesus. That Jesus was the one they'd been waiting for and the center of all their hopes and the king who's going to make all things right and give even them a place in his kingdom forgiven of all their sins. That's what Paul's doing with his time. And Luke wants us to notice that this was all ongoing and daily and weekly practice for well over a year. And all of it with Aquila and Priscilla right right by his side. What do you think Paul talked about to Aquila and Priscilla on Monday through Friday while they were working with their hands? When their hands were occupied, making tents, but their minds were clear and free. What do you think they focused on around the dinner table in the evenings? Surely it would have been his work. Breaking down how it went last time he was at the synagogue. Talking through who might have interest in the gospel and learning more. Maybe brainstorming how to get past barriers Paul's running into or what misunderstandings that need to be cleared away. Maybe thinking through what he's going to say next time to move that ball forward. Knowing Paul, in other words... Day after day after day as he's sharing his life with Aquila and Priscilla, he's not just making tents, he's making co-workers. He's training them for this work, taking them along day in, day out, showing them how to do what he's been doing. And he's doing this for up to two years, Luke tells us. No wonder then, go back with me to the text, when he decides to leave Corinth and head home back to check in with his sending church in Antioch, verse 18 tells us, takes Priscilla and Aquila with them. And no wonder then, verse 19 tells us, when they make a stop at Ephesus on the way home and they find some opportunity there to talk to people about Jesus, Paul gets it started but doesn't feel the need to stay. Verse 19 tells us they they wanted him to stick around. They begged him to stay. He said, maybe I'll come back because this city does matter to him. But he knows he's got two other competent workers to put on this job and he knows they're ready. Luke tells us he left them there and he went on about his way. Now, one, one more thing about this story Art, before we stop and think back about what it, what it means for us. Look at where this story ends. Notice with me how this process comes full circle. In verse 24, we're told... That a Jewish man named Apollos came into Ephesus after Paul left. Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. This was a man, we're told, of considerable gifts, and he was a Christian all in, using his gifts to spread the word. This is a guy who comes up in other places in the New Testament. This isn't the last time we see him. In fact, he's clearly a powerful figure in the growth of the church, right up there next to the apostles and his influence on the spread of Christianity during this time. That's what we'll find out later in the New Testament. But when he first arrives in Ephesus, he's still missing something. We don't know exactly what All that Luke tells us is that though he spoke truthfully about Jesus, he knew only the baptism of John. Maybe he was missing the fact that Christ had to die in order to reign as king. Maybe he was missing the fact that the Spirit has now come. Maybe he was missing the fact that the gospel is for the Gentiles, not just for the Jews. We don't know what he was missing, only that he was missing something. And Aquila and Priscilla, having trained with Paul for all this time, they were discerning enough to see the gap. And they were learning enough to help him fill it. I love the way Luke describes this scene. They don't just pounce on him. They don't denounce him. They don't call him out publicly. They don't warn people against listening to this man whose gospel is incomplete. But they take him aside. And Luke says, verse 26, they explain to him the way of God more accurately. They, Priscilla and Aquila, see it as their responsibility to do for others the same thing Paul had just done for them. Now look at where this ends. Look at how Luke rounds off this story. Apollos leaves Ephesus, crosses over to Achaia, the place where where Paul and others had already been. When he arrives in Achaia, possibly right back in Corinth where this story began, Look at what we find Apollos doing. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Does that language sound familiar? It's exactly the same message that Paul was preaching. Verse 5. Day after day, Paul was occupied with the word and his message was, verse 5, the Christ was Jesus. Do you see the point? What Luke is showing us about this strategy. This is so much bigger than Paul or any other leader. What Luke has given us in this ark is a story form of the same point that Paul makes in his second letter to Timothy. Paul wrote Timothy in in 2 Timothy 2.2. What you have heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see the chain? What you heard from me, you entrust to others who will teach others. It's exactly what's going on in this story. Paul takes Aquila and Priscilla under wing. He lets them shadow him while he's preaching that the Christ was Jesus. Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos under wing. They they see something's missing in what he's saying about Jesus. They show him what that is. Apollos goes back to Corinth and encourages people who believe. And what is he telling them? The same thing Paul told them, told Priscilla and Aquila to start this whole thing. The Christ was Jesus. This chain is basic Christianity, and for our church to be healthy, if we're gonna build a church on this word of God that's all our hope in life and death, we need you to jump into this chain. This type of personal ministry is for everybody. Often I'm asked, How can I serve the church? I've told you guys this before. I'll tell you to it again. I'll tell it to you again now. I'll keep on telling it as long as I have breath to tell you. The most important thing you can do to serve this church is to invest spiritually in someone else's spiritual health. To take the word of Christ and press it into the details of the lives of someone in this church that needs your help. That's the most important way anyone ever serves our church. Whatever else you might do. However many volunteer teams you might be on. Even if you should choose to rise up today to the rousing announcement of the need for help in child care. We would love to have you in child care. We will also need you to be investing in the spiritual health of other people in the church. That's baseline. Everything else comes second to that fundamental work. And it's yours to do. Friend, you can do it. You can't say, you know what? Look, I I have never been to seminary. I'm not going to go to seminary. I don't even really like to read. That's not my thing. I like to work with my hands. I like to live closer to the ground. Wouldn't it be better if the more intellectual types take up the role of teaching people about Jesus? You could think that ministry isn't for me. If If that's you, look at Aquila here. This is a tradesman. This is a craftsman. He works all day with his hands. He's he's running his own business. This is a man who's like whose hands are dirty in the life of the world. In a good way, not in a bad way. But he didn't just say to Paul, you know what, Paul, you do your thing and I'll do mine. He wasn't just content to honor God by making beautiful tents. That's a good way to honor God. You're made in his image, be creative by all means. I trust he was honoring God in the tents that he made and not ripping people off. But in addition to that, he saw himself as responsible to teach people who Jesus is, to train himself to do it through through soaking up what he could from Paul and then to go put that into practice. Whatever else you do, you're called to do this and you can because it depends on Christ and not on you. And don't you dare doubt your fitness for this work because you're a woman. Yes, the New Testament does reserve the specific office of elder in the life of the church for qualified men. But the role of Bible teaching in the local church, the role of personal ministry that helps others understand Jesus, that belongs to every woman in our church because this work is for everybody. Our church cannot be helpful, healthy in the way that we need to be if you women are not taking up your responsibility to teach others the Bible. One of the most dynamic preachers in the history of the church, Apollos, was discipled and taught by Priscilla. And there is no question in my mind that in my own life, looking, on ba- looking back on the, on the things God has used to develop me among the most precious gifts He's ever given to me, have been women who've taught me the Bible and modeled faithfulness before me as a kid and in my home and nowhere more clearly than in this church by many of you. This work is for everybody. If you're a Christian, God has called you to the work of ministry in the lives of others. I want to encourage you this afternoon to read Ephesians chapter 4, to let that be a follow-up homework assignment for you. And look at how Paul in that letter calls on the church to get involved in the life of ministry. He says in that letter, yes, the church has been given pastors, teachers, apostles, some leaders, they've they've been given leaders, but those leaders are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. They get their role from your role as saints. And the way that we grow up into the image of Jesus, into a mature manhood, Paul says, is when we, all of us, speak the truth in love to one another, just as Priscilla and Aquila did for Apollo's. And the programming in our church that's offered to you, it's offered to help with this. The Sunday Bible study classes that we hold right before we come in here to worship together, those are meant to put good tools in your hands to try to teach other people. They're meant for you to be taught, but also so that you, you can teach. And the small groups that we have meeting around the city and, in, and during our weeks, those are, those are meant to sort of tee you up for ministry opportunities that might be harder to find otherwise. They're, they're meant to put you in the life of people who need you. How can you serve our church? You, you can serve by investing in somebody's spiritual health using the word. Then invest in somebody else and keep doing it as often as you can, as many as you can handle for as long as you live. That's what it'll take for our church to build a ministry on this word, trusting that it is ultimately the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What do we need? We'll need your partnership. That's the first squeeze of the orange, and it's the central thread that's unique to this chapter. And it's taken up most of our time this morning by design. But there is more juicy goodness that we can squeeze out of this chapter. And more quickly, I want to show it to you. There is a second thing that we'll need based on what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 18. If we want to build our church's life around the power of the gospel to save, the second thing that we'll need is your patience. Because if you take up this work the Lord has put before you, you ought to know right up front something that will be crucial for your effectiveness in helping others grow and your ability to keep on doing that over the long haul. This work of personal ministry in the life of others is super inefficient, it's often messy, it's often slow, and it'll take a lot of patience from you. We get this out of another unique detail that Luke chooses to give us in this chapter. As we followed along with Paul's missionary journey so far, Luke just hadn't told us very much about how long he's been at each place. That's not been Luke's focus up till now. We just, Luke has been just moving real fast from city to city, just telling us how, how much ground Paul covered and not giving us a ton of detail about how long he was, he was where. Here, though, Luke chooses to change that pattern and actually fill in some of the detail. Here he tells us that here in, in Corinth, he was at the synagogue week after week after week, teaching and persuading. That's verse 4. And then verse 11, he tells us that he did this week after week for a year and six months. And even after that, we're told in verse 18 that Paul spent many days longer in that city. He camped out here. It's true that Luke tells us back in verse 6 that there was a time he moved on from the synagogue because there was a lot of opposition to him there. But did you notice where he went when he decided to to, uh, to, to, to move on and shake out his garments. Verse 7 says he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, that was next door to the synagogue. He just went right next door, carrying on the same exact ministry, doing the same persuading work with probably a lot of the same people. Paul was there for the long haul. He didn't let, him, let this opposition get him down, he just kept going. Now, think about this, guys. Think about the scale of the world. Think about the scarcity of the gospel witness available. Think about the brevity of Paul's life. When I mean, you get, given all of that, surely it made it tough for him to sit still. Why did he stay so long in this one place? Isn't it clearly because Paul knew and Luke wanted us to know that this work is time intensive. The personal ministry of the word in people's lives takes forever. It's often unpredictable because it involves people. It's not possible to control it because it involves the power of God and not our own. It takes patience to keep after this work over the long haul. I mean, to zoom out a little bit beyond what we're told in Acts and to take some context that we can get from Paul's letters back to Corinth when he's left them. It's not long after Paul spent this year in Corinth working week after week to establish this church that he had to write them some letters just to clean up the mess that was still there. Just to carry on with his teaching they hadn't gotten yet. The, the, the letters that he writes to Corinth make it obvious that this, this church, these, these people that he's, that he's ministering to in Acts 18, they have a long, long way to go. They're not anywhere close. It was a mess. And the first letter that Paul wrote to Corinth after he's gone... He has to correct them for one-upping one another through what preachers they like best. He has to call them out for their approval of scandalous sexual immorality in the church. He has to remind them to stop bragging about their spiritual gifts and comparing them to one another as if those things mattered more than love. He has to give them rules to follow for when they met on Sundays because they were all talking over one another chaotically. And he had to remind them again, look, you and your voice is not the point. This isn't your platform for showing how awesome you are. The point is the resurrection of Jesus. And speaking of that, the core message, the punchline of all the sermons Luke has given us, surely the, the, the day in and day out content of Paul's teaching to these people when he was with them, even that he had to write them about in chapter 15 of, of 1 Corinthians and remind them, yeah, it really matters because some people had come in saying it didn't and they were being swayed by that. Even the very basic thing that he tried to beat into them over and over and over, he had to reinforce no sooner than he's left. Imagine how discouraging that must have been. He gave them a year and a half at least of his precious time, and still they need so much help. But, but guys, for, for Paul, this was all part of the strategy, it wasn't unexpected. He knew. Luke would have us know personal ministry is time-intensive work, inefficient, costly. Because people are complicated and busy and distracted and pulled in all sorts of directions by all sorts of forces. This work that we're asking you to take up for the sake of our church is going to take you a lot of time. So we're going to need a lot of patience too. You'll need patience to trust the Lord with what you can't always see and what you can never control. You're going to need patience with, with one another to know that this sort of up and down process of sanctification is expected to look that way. One of my favorite images, I don't even remember who came up with it, for what a growth of a Christian really looks like is somebody playing with a yo-yo while walking upstairs. There's a lot of down and up, down and up. But over time, you're climbing the stairs. Over time, you're going up. But there's a lot of down along the way. That's normal. That's expected. And and friends, to make it work, you're going to need a lot of the love that Paul wrote to these Corinthians about. A love that is, first of all, patient before it's even kind. A love that believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things and that never fails Friends, we need from you a willingness to keep inconveniencing yourself for the sake of the progress of the gospel among your friends. And we can trust the Lord in our patience because we know He is ultimately the one who's at work in them. We don't have to, as another pastor put it, micromanage anyone's sanctification. That job belongs to the Spirit. Our job is to day after day and week after week take this word to them. Now, friends, I, I, I want to f- conclude with one final squeeze of this orange. One more thing that we're going to need from you if we're to be faithful as a church to building our whole ministry on our confidence in God's word to do the job. We're going to need your partnership, that's for sure. We're going to need your patience if you decide to partner with us in this work because it's not always going to be clear that it's working. And finally, over all of it, we'll need your prayers. We'll need your prayers. This is a hallmark of Paul's ministry. In letter after letter that he writes to the churches that he's founded, he shows us the kind of things he's praying for, for them. And he asks for for them to pray for him. And in Acts, we've often seen this in action. We see the apostles and the earliest Christians just stop whatever they're doing in a moment of of challenge and just pray over it and expect the Lord to work. And a crucial part of Paul's strategy that we're still going to need for ourselves is focused prayer that God will build up our church through His Word as we share it with one another and with our neighbors. I think this comes out in Acts chapter 18 in a slightly veiled way that I think has a lot to teach us and that I want to show you. This is that last squeeze of the orange. There's still a little bit in there, but we're going to have to work hard to get it out. But I think it's worth the work. Let me show you what I'm talking about. At the center of this chapter, in chapter 18, is this fascinating little story that echoes other stories of opposition to the gospel uh, that we've seen already. Look back with me at verses 5 to 11. These verses tell of Paul, once again, meeting opposition among the Jews. He's been working in the synagogue day after day after day. Some of them are believing. That's exciting. But then the more people who believe, the more violent the reaction against them from those who don't believe. Paul, on the one hand, we're told here, sees the ruler of the synagogue come to faith, a man named Crispus. He was converted along with all his household. But verse 6 says, many others opposed and reviled him. This is something he was used to by now. Surely this is what wore him down and made him tired of dealing with all of it. And it's right here that Jesus meets him in a vision. Read with me verses 9 and 10. The Lord, speaking of Jesus, said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. In other words, carry on the personal ministry of the word. Keep on day after day, week after week. Do what you're doing. 4 Verse 10 I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Then, no sooner has Luke passed on this vision to us than he's moved on to a scene where the exact opposite of what he promised seems to take place. Jesus has said, No one will attack you or harm you. Then, look at verse 12. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, before this man, Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia. Exactly what Jesus said he wouldn't allow seems to be happening, but not so fast. They bring him up before Gallio, and just as Paul is about to open his mouth to offer the same kind of defense he's used to offering over and over again, before he can even open his mouth, Gallio, of all people, defends him instead. Look at verses 15 and 16. Since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, Gallio says. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. This decision right here that Gallio makes to say, you know what? We just aren't concerned about this sort of internal dispute. This decision is huge for the church in this time. It carves out official legal space for Paul to keep doing the work that he's doing, for Apollos to come behind him and start to keep doing the work that he's doing. It is the gift that they needed to carry on with the work that, that Jesus promised to bless. And it all depends on Gallio being completely ignorant about what's going on. It doesn't depend on the goodness of his heart. He's not a nice man. We read the part where they start beating up on this ruler of, a, of the synagogue right in front of Galileo. He says nothing. He doesn't care. He doesn't even see these Jews as real full people. He's just annoyed by them like gnats that keep buzzing around his ear. It's not the goodness of his heart that carves out this space. It's his apathy. Now, I said this was going to be a point about focused prayer, and this is what I mean. Among Paul's letters in the New Testament are two letters written to Christians in the city of Thessalonica, a place that Paul had stopped before he reached Corinth. Scholars believe that that these letters to Thessalonica were written during his stay here in Corinth. So while he's here, working with Aquila and Priscilla, going to the synagogue day after day after day, he's using his nighttime hours, presumably, to write back to Christians that he's met in his earlier stops. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, listen to what Paul asks of his friends in that city during this time that he's working here in Corinth. This is what Paul wrote to them. Finally, brothers, pray for us. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Pray for us that the word will go forward, that people will trust it. Pray that we'll be delivered from those who oppose it. He's asking for them to pray for what he's doing right here in Corinth. Now come back to Acts 18 with me. What's happening? The word is spreading. Even the ruler of the synagogue comes to faith. And opposition is rising up. And once again, against all odds, Paul is delivered by a ruler who has no love for him at all. Now, guys, I realize that I'm, you know, this is a little bit of conjecture here, just a little bit, that to get this last bit of juice, we're squeezing hard on this passage. But I think we should see that when Gallio protected Paul, when Gallio, despite himself, facilitated the spread of the gospel of Jesus, Jesus was fulfilling his promise to Paul from that vision. No one will harm you. Keep speaking the gospel. And that Jesus made that promise to Paul because Jesus was answering the prayer of Paul's friends who asked of Jesus that the word might spread and that The opposition wouldn't hinder it. This word is spreading right here in answer to the focused prayer of God's people. I wonder, friends, how often do prayers like this one come up in your prayer life? Prayers like the one that Paul asked his friends in Thessalonica to pray for him. In one of his books, John Piper, a pastor from Minneapolis, once lamented, we tend to use prayer as a domestic intercom rather than as a wartime walkie-talkie. I don't know about you, but that works for me and it cuts me right to the heart. We often use, uh, use prayer for the kinds of things that, you know, a wealthy tycoon might ask of his butler. You know, buzzing in Jeeves to bring the car around or to make sure that dinner is served at 545. As opposed to the walkie-talkie used by the frontline soldiers who were pinned down beyond their ability to escape, who were fighting against odds they can't meet on their own. Leverage to the hilt in a war that matters, but that's too much for them to call in air support from beyond. Paul is leveraged to the hilt in the ministry of the Word. He is completely occupied with it, Luke says. And he's seeing, he knows that seeing fruit from it is going to take more than he can deliver So he prays and he asks for prayer. And not just any prayer, but prayer that's focused on the word going out. We want to follow his example, friends. For our church to succeed as we build our ministry around this word, we have to pray that God will bless it because it's his work before it's ever ours. We want to follow his example in our private prayers and also in our public prayers. focused on the spread of the gospel here in our church and around the world. We need you to be involved in that. So, friends, just this week, I flipped into my church directory, which is available to you always, digitally, online, password that we can provide to you, or available to you by hard copy at the office anytime you want one. I flipped to a page full of H's this week. I prayed for Jim and Lynn Henderson, and for Sandy and Grady Hester, and for Stephen and Natalie Holliball, and for Misty Hooper and her kids, Nicholas and Lucas. And I prayed a prayer based on 2 Thessalonians 3. I pray that the word of God would spread in their hearts. That they would trust that it can forgive them no matter what they've already done wrong. That it would protect them from shame over their past or fear for their future. I pray that the Lord would give them opportunities to speak of this good news to other people around them. That there'd be opportunities at work or in their neighborhoods or in their own families. I prayed for Nicholas and Lucas that that the gospel as taught to them by their mother and by others in our church. that, That it would draw them in. That it would be beautiful to them and that they would trust him and nobody else to save them from sin and death. Friends, will you pray like that? For the names that God has brought into your life and connected to you through this church. And, and friends, tonight we'll have the first of our Sunday evening gatherings. Do you know this whole thing is designed for this work? For 2 Thessalonians 3 type of prayers to make it easier on you to remember to do it. Like We're trying to give you a chance to just come and be here with us. And then you can be faithful to what you've promised right here on the spot. How efficient is that? Because each week we're going to be praying that the Lord will bless the ministry of his word right here from this pulpit and in all of these relationships. And we're going to pray over people like Mitchell and Amanda that as they go, the Lord will go before them. That the word will spread and that he protect them from opposition and that he would see fruit born from their work over and over and over as they stay true to the same basic message that spin up Paul's days and nights. You can do this right here with us on the spot. We're trying to make it as easy for you as possible. Would you you come and be part of it? Would you pray that the Lord will bless it? Even if you're not able to be here regularly on Sunday evenings, would you please pray that the Lord will use that time for those of us who are here and for the health of our whole church overall? Friends, this prayer is not wasted time. This this prayer matters and it works for the same reason that patience is worth it and for the same reason that personal ministry of the word is always worth it. We serve a risen Savior. Though he died, he lives now. And this work we're about is his work. He died and rose to do it. He won't let it go undone. So when we pray to him, we pray to one who hears us. When we're patient with one another, we're patient because we know he's at work. He can finish this even when we don't know how. When we go to the word day after day and week after week, we go to a word of a risen Savior who gives us a hope we can't find anywhere else. All of this strategy depends on Jesus being alive and active. And he is. So would you join us in building a church that is all in on the living Savior that we serve and trust and protect us from any strategies that act like he's not alive or like like any good work could be done on our initiative, on our design, based on our creativity. Let's double down together on Christ or nothing and build a ministry strategy that fits that at every turn. Now would you pray with me that the Lord will do this for us? father we pray that you would be among us at work through your word just as you were in corinth and that you would give us the same confidence that you gave to paul to keep after it to trust it to never stop doing it and i pray that beginning tonight in this sunday evening gathering you would give us an opportunity weekly in our church's life to do powerful impactful work just like this we pray for tonight and for the weeks to follow that just as we pray for our time here on Sunday mornings, uh, that you would use it to, to knit us together more closely and feed our relationships of love and truth with one another throughout each week. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.